Behind every great fortune lies a great crime, because this is hell, and the great fortune we will be discussing in a few minutes is the vast riches made by social media platforms. And the crime we will be talking about with our guests is the, gr- the crime of what our guest calls the enshittification of those social media platforms. As our guest today writes the term he coined, which was selected as the 2023 word of the year by the American Dialect Society, explains how the internet was colonized by platforms while all those platforms are degrading so quickly and thoroughly why it matters and what we can do about it. But it's not only social media platforms like Facebook that promise to save us from the spying of MySpace, only to secretly spy on all of us and gradually destroy whatever service it did provide to the public. Corey argues, our guest argues, that is, his term can now be applied to, well, everything. And that's right, our first guest this week is science fiction author, activist, and journalist Corey Doctorow, who posted the Financial Times article, and shitification is coming for absolutely everything. The term describes the slow decay of online platforms such as Facebook. But what if we've entered the Enchido scene? This piece is adapted from the Marshall McLuhan lecture delivered at the uh, Embassy of Canada in Berlin last month. Corey is a special advisor to the Electronic Freedom Frontier Foundation and a visiting professor of computer science at the Open University. We have featured the Electronic Frontier Foundation on our show many times in the past, and many times in the past I've accidentally said freedom instead of frontier. Find out more about the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. Follow them on X at EFF. Corey also has a new book out. It's called The Bezel, a high-stakes thriller where the lives of the hundreds of thousands of inmates in California's prisons are traded like stock shares. It is a seething rebuke of the privatized prison system that delves deeply into the arcane and baroque financial chicanery involved in the 2008 financial crash. The bezel is a sizzling follow-up to his earlier work, Red Team Blues, a science fiction crime thriller. Corey will be making an appearance, including an author presentation, audience Q&A, book signing, and photo line here in the Chicago area. Write this down. On Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. at Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville at 123 West Jefferson Avenue. I'll be repeating that throughout this morning's conversation, but one more time. That's going to be Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. at Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville at 123 West Jefferson Avenue. Prior to The Bezel, his most recent book is Lost Cause, a solar punk science fiction novel of hope amidst the climate emergency. Corey's most recent nonfiction is The Internet Con, How to Seize the Means of Computation, from our good friends over at Verso Books, a big tech disassembly manual. He is also author of Choke Point Capitalism, about monopoly and creative labor markets. Corey has also written a series for young adults called Little Brother, a graphic novel titled In Real Life, and the picture book Posey the the Monster Slayer. In 2020, Corey was inducted into the Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. 
Find out more about Corey as well as read his blog at the website craphound.com. Follow Corey on X at Dr. O. D-O-C-T-O-R-O-W. Producing is Will Ippin. Will, how are you? Anything new in your world? Um, great. Uh, looking forward to getting this episode radio friendly. Mm. <laughs> That's my question to you. So, uh-huh. it is a word of the year. The There's a syllable within that word, in shittification, that is a profanity. Yes. So... But it's wrapped in another word. That's what I'm saying. I don't know if this actually falls under being a profane word. Yeah, I don't know. When it comes to the FCC. I, have, know, I have heard him interviewed on uh, like on the media, maybe, on NPR. And? So Did they believe it? I don't believe so. I'll have to check back, though. See, I, don't, <laughs> I think we should find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go look up those old episodes. And as the FCC is complaint-driven, yes. if everybody just keeps their mouth shut. Yeah, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> exactly. Don't want to ruin our good thing we have going here. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. After finishing my reading and research for today's talk with Corey late last week, I spent my weekend working on our upcoming conversations later on this week. One with sociologist Amin Faidan Elcioglu, how about that, who went inside the far-right vigilante patrols at the U.S.-Mexico border to discover the relationship between guns and immigration, that is, when it comes to being pro-gun and anti-immigration. When I wasn't doing that, I was reading the work of another sociologist, Amy Cooter, who is returning to the show later this week to discuss her new book, where she went inside the extremist U.S. militia movement so she could, and so we can, understand that movement better. And she did that in my home state of Michigan, southeastern Michigan, actually where I was born and raised. So that was frightening. And there's nothing quite like spending your weekend, the time when we are supposedly relaxing and finally catching our breath to enjoy life for a brief freaking moment. There's nothing like spending your weekend trying to understand people whose beliefs are antithetical to your own. It's definitely not something I would have chosen to do with my time if it were not for this show. So, I want to take this moment to thank everyone who supports the show, everyone listening, and the show itself for forcing me to consider something I never would have if it wasn't for This Is Hell, and that is taking the time to understand others who are otherwise completely incomprehensible changing them from a cartoonish characterization, a simplistic stereotype into, who knew, real live human beings who I now better understand, but with whom I still completely disagree. All that said, will more important than me having a better understanding of extremist white supremacist Christian nationalists here in the United States and along our southern border, Will, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell comes from Hugh, who posted his suggestion to our Discord community. This week's question from hell is, what are you bringing to the This Is Hell bake sale? What are you bringing to the This Is Hell bake sale? I was very surprised that we got not only the quantity of responses that we've gotten so far, but the quality. Uh, Will will be sharing some of, uh, Will will be sharing all of your responses so far as posted at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash this is hell and you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page at our facebook group page welcome to hell hole you can tweet it at us on x you can post it in our discord community like i said you can post it at patreon 
The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell then wins their choice of whatever This Is Hell swag they want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Will has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is not natural remedies. Uh-oh, is this one coming from Big Pharma? Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, when you see who the source is. Oh, I was going to say, absolutely. We, uh, we, we, we turned to some pretty sage advice here. Uh, Mayo Clinic advises talking to your healthcare professional if regular hangovers affect your quality of life, including your personal relationships or your performance at school or work. Yes, that's probably a good idea. Uh, so getting real with yourself. If I brought, If I said that to my doctor, he would be so mad at me. He would be. He would just tell me, "Go home and quit drinking." Yeah, right. And that would be the end of the conversation. <laughs> Why are you making it my problem? Exactly. You know what to do. Uh, they suggest that if you're hungover, sip water or fruit juice to prevent dehydration. Have a snack of bland foods. What's the fun in that? Like toast and crackers, uh, which may boost your blood sugar and settle your stomach, or take a pain reliever. However, aspirin and ibuprofen can irritate your stomach. And the combination of alcohol and acetaminophen can cause liver damage. Uh, the Mayo Clinic also recommends that you go back to bed. So nothing that we have suggested, or nothing we have not suggested in the past. Everything we've suggested, all of these things we've yeah. suggested in the past. They've right. given us no news up to this point. Nope. Just, uh, I guess, no new cutting-edge research. Nope. Uh, coming not out at the Mayo, Mayo Clinic. Clinic. <laughs> They're not interested in your hangover. <laughs> nope. Um, the Mayo Clinic then adds many alternative remedies are marketed for hangovers, but studies haven't found any natural remedies that consistently or effectively improve hangover symptoms. Talk to your healthcare professional. But they really want you to talk to your healthcare yeah, professional. They <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they do. Talk to your healthcare professional before trying any alternative medicine. Keep in mind that natural doesn't always mean safe. Your healthcare professional can help you understand possible risks and benefits before you try a treatment. That makes this week's hangover cure not natural medicines unless you talk to your doctor about it first. <laughs> Coming up, why everything is turning into crap. Will shares listeners' answers to this week's question from hell as posted at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. And we'll tell you who we have confirmed as our guest for the rest of this week's show. The revolutionary linguist Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in Talk Radio. So clearly, Noam's no mental health expert because this is hell. Why is everything seemingly getting worse? I mean, I remember embracing a worldview that had me thinking everything was always getting better. However, it turns out the future ain't what it used to be after all. The future, it turns out, is a future where everything eventually turns to crap. Here to explain why that is, science fiction author, activist, and journalist Cory Doctorow posted the Financial Times article, And Shittification is Coming for Absolutely Everything. The term describes the slow decay of online platforms such as Facebook. But what if we've entered the Enshitto scene? Welcome to This Is Hell, Cory. Hey, good morning. Nice to be talking to you about uh, a word that the FCC doesn't like. What do you think? Do you think that's going to be bleeped or what? Uh, NPR did bleep it. Uh, <sighs> funnily enough, because I'm doing so much radio all over the place, 
I'm getting a real kind of front lines, uh, front row seat to like what different broadcasting authorities do and don't permit. So like, you're good to say it in Canada, New Zealand, the United Kingdom, Germany, uh, but like not in America, land of the free and home of the Whopper. <laughs> so uh, we're going to be able to play this without any uh, editing whatsoever at our radio station in Winnipeg, but not here in Chicago. Good to know. Also at Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho. So, Corey, uh, you also have a new book out, The Bezel, a high-stakes thriller where the lives of the hundreds of thousands of inmates in California's prisons are traded like stock shares. How can you, like, here, this is from the inside, by the way, we got your uh, autographed copy of your book in the mail today, and so thank you very much for that. How can a science fiction novel start with these four years, four words inside of the jacket? The year is 2006. Doesn't science fiction usually happen in the future? Yeah, this is a thing. Uh, I, I don't remember if I coined it to describe what William Gibson was doing or if Bill coined it, but uh, it's it's uh, predicting the present. So the science fiction uh, science fiction is like well best understood as like a mode of talking about the kind of social arrangements of technology and speculating about it. Some people think that that's also predictive. I don't think it is. In fact, I'm quite certain it isn't because if the future were predictable, then nothing we did would matter. Uh, I think that it, that these are sort of futuristic parables. And you can tell futuristic parables about the present. You can kind of treat the technology that we live with as a speculative um, matter that uh, can be re-factored uh, based on different social arrangements. You know, this is something that I've called uh, Luddite literature. You know, the Luddites get this bad rap as being like uh, people who are technophobic, but really what they were were um, uh, people who challenged not what the technology does, but who it did it for and who it did it to, right? Like it wasn't that they were afraid of machines. They were all skilled uh, machine workers. You, you had to do like a seven-year apprentice to be a, a textile worker in in uh, old England. They had the equivalent of like a master's degree in engineering from MIT. The thing that they were angry about was that their bosses uh, wanted machines that were so easy children could use them specifically so they could go kidnap children from Napoleonic war orphanages uh, indenture them to 10 years of servitude, beat them, starve them, maim them, even kill them, uh, and then sell the goods overseas. And, you know, their boss's claim was that this was inevitable, that there was like no way to imagine an increased degree of automation without the machines that provide that automation being greased with the blood of war orphans. And they were challenging not what the machine did, but who it did it for and who it did it to. They were they were making a contestation about the social arrangements. So that's what these books are. They're books about how the social arrangements of our technology are different from what the technology does, that they're contingent, that they're changeable, that the people who took the decisions that led us into the inshidocene uh, are people who made conscious choices, knowing that this was likely to happen, did it anyway, that we know what those choices were, we can reverse those choices, we know who made those choices, we can kind of estimate what size pitchfork they wear and find out their home address. Uh, you know, like that, that Technology is not a force unto itself. That technology is a thing that humans ultimately command. So do you think this historic demonization of Luddites as being backwards and simply anti-technology, do you think that that is 
purposeful and intentional in order to distract people from what they really were standing up for. Yeah, purposeful, intentional, and and wrong, right? Just like as a purely technical matter, the, the Luddites left a lot of material behind, a lot of written material, as did their supporters. You know, Byron's uh, first speech in the House of Lords was a hymn to the wonder of the Luddites and what they believed. They wrote a lot of newspaper editorials and so on. It's just, it's a it's an historically unsupportable libel. It's also, you know, a tribute to the idea that the people who win get to write the histories. And, you know, there's a very good book about this that my friend Brian Merchant has just laid off as the LA Times first and now last technology critic wrote last year called uh, Blood and the Machine. That is uh, a much more historically accurate and extremely rigorous history of the Luddites that compares what they did to current techno-skeptical and techno-oppositional movements. So that's Brian Merchant, and the name of the book is Blood in the Machine. We'll definitely be yeah. looking for that for Brian to be as a guest on the show. You explain enshidification as your theory, explaining how the internet was colonized by platforms, why all those platforms are degrading so quickly and thoroughly, why it matters and what we can do about it, as I was mentioning earlier during the intro. But you also add we are all living through a great enshittening. Uh, in which the services that matter to us, that we rely on, are turning into giant piles of shit. It's frustrating, it's demoralizing, it's even terrorizing. Look, I, I get frustrating and demoralizing, I get that, but how is it terrifying? Why should we fear the decay and demise of platforms, platforms you know, that are run by people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, who many people have a lot of animosity toward? Why should we be afraid of their platforms turning to crap? Well, let me give you a really concrete example. Uh, there's a group of people that we worked with at the Electronic Frontier Foundation who were born with the gene for breast cancer. So they're, they're what are called breast cancer previvors. They have an extremely high likelihood of getting breast cancer at some point in their life, uh, as uh, do the uh, people with breasts in their lives, the women in their lives, their daughters, their sisters, their mothers, their aunts, their grandmothers. And so they formed a support group on Facebook. They have to make a number of extremely consequential decisions, like whether to get preventative mastectomies uh, before they're diagnosed, and if they do, to what extent they should have them, and, and so on, even as they are grieving uh, people in their lives who've died, and even as they're providing care for people who are ill, potentially mortally ill. Now, these people have what economists call the collective action problem, uh, which is to say that getting all these people together one at a time on Facebook was relatively easy because each person just had to decide, oh, well, this is where the group is. I'm going to go hang out there. But getting all those people now that they're there to leave is really hard, right? They, they not only have to agree that they should leave, but they have to agree on when they should leave and where they should go next. And the difficulty of making that decision is so transcendental that they end up sticking around and they stuck around through all kinds of terrible things. Like the woman who started this group was doing some research and uh, discovered that Facebook had a bug that allowed any Facebook user to enumerate the full membership of any group. So you could find out who all the people in this group were, even if you weren't a member. And when she went to Facebook and said, you have this giant privacy bug, uh, Facebook said, oh, that's not a bug. That's a feature. It's part of our ad tech stack. Um, we're going to call your bug report a feature request and uh, we're not going to fix it. 
So they uh, brought a case against Facebook, a privacy case against Facebook. That was one of the cases that was settled under the previous administration when the FTC settled all the privacy claims against Facebook with uh, with with one fine, which meant that they never got justice. They didn't consent to the settlement. And they're still there, right? They're still hanging out there because the value of this community exceeds the the privacy risks of the uh, that they experience by being under Mark Zuckerberg's venal thumb. And, you know, they are faced with this increasingly stark choice as Facebook gets ever worse. They're faced with this increasingly stark choice. Do I stay here and get potentially life-saving advice and support, but subject myself to potentially life-ruining decisions from Facebook and its shareholders? Or do I leave protect myself from Facebook shareholders, but subject myself to the risks that arise from abandoning this community that's so important to my life. That is a terrifying thing to go through. There are smaller and larger versions of that that play out in all of our lives. You know, if your kid went through the pandemic uh, on lockdown and is only fragilely and haltingly reestablishing a social circle and the parents of the kids that you hang out with organize the carpools for the soccer league or some other activity that is so important to your kid and their their recovery from the psychic damage of having been isolated through those critical years, you have to decide, do I stay on Facebook? And do this thing that's so important for my kids' mental and physical well-being, but subject myself to the continuous non-consensual surveillance of Mark Zuckerberg and his shareholders? Or do I deprive my kid of that important stuff, but protect myself from Mark Zuckerberg's horrific privacy invasions? These are choices that have no good answer, and they're false choices because there are versions of this where we say, all right, well, we're going to force Facebook to support interoperability so you can leave Facebook, go to a rival service that is respectful of your privacy, but that your messages can still be sent back to Facebook. The same way you can leave Verizon and go to T-Mobile and still get calls from the people on, on, on Verizon that you spoke to before. Um, or we could say to Facebook, well, you have to respect privacy law. Or we could do both, right? Maybe we tell Facebook you have to respect privacy law, but knowing that Facebook is a lawless, reckless firm that is too big to fail and too big to jail and routinely floats regulation, we say, we're going to give you the uh, long-term relief of being able to sue Facebook for eye-watering sums when they violate your privacy, and the short-term relief of letting you leave Facebook when you discover those privacy violations, go somewhere else and continue to get the value you had from Facebook. So has Facebook then already faced justice when it comes to privacy and justice has failed us? Or can it yet again be motivated to change their ways by or through the law and through elected representation? The thing you have to understand is that from the Carter administration through the Trump administration, but not including the Biden administration, we have an enormous tolerance for monopoly. We adopted this this rule or this theory that came out of the Chicago school, you know, your your hometown economist there, uh, called the consumer welfare theory of uh, antitrust. And the consumer welfare theory very broadly says that the reason that monopolies form is that they're efficient. And if you find yourself in an economy where everyone shops at one store and they all buy one thing, you haven't discovered that someone is cheating and taking over the economy. You've discovered that someone has figured out how to operate the best store that sells the best stuff. And so when the FTC under previous administrations came after Facebook, what they decided was that, or what what they started with was the proposition that Facebook itself should be like a permanent fixture in our lives, that rather than um, 
abolishing Facebook, we should reform Facebook. That you know, the problem with Mark Zuckerberg was not that he uh, that you know he was uh, that that no one should be the social media czar of four billion people's lives. The problem was that he was like unfit to be the social media czar of four billion people's lives. And the idea was that if they set a price on his misbehavior, you know, a fine as a price, that um, that price would nudge him into being a better unelected czar for life of, of four billion people. And it failed. But with the Biden administration, and I'm, I, I'll, I'll say here as a sidebar, I, I donated money to three Democratic candidates in the last cycle for president, and none of them were Biden. He is not my guy. Uh, but with the Biden administration, you got this unity task force where the Sanders-Warren wing of the party got to make some key appointments. And those appointments were concentrated heavily in the antitrust and corporate governance sector, the uh, FTC, the DOJ antitrust division, uh, the, um, the uh, CFPB. Uh, and other agencies that have enormous uh, power that had lain dormant for decades to actually rein in corporate misconduct. And it is through those agencies that we now see the most muscular action being taken on big tech and, and on large corporations more broadly that we've seen in two generations. And it's not merely because these are good appointees, although they are. It's because they're riding a political tailwind that is all over the world because the manifest problems of excessive corporate power and the concentration that creates that excessive corporate power have now awakened the political mood in the United Kingdom, in the European Union, Australia, Canada, the US, even in China, where you have a new cyberspace directive that uh, contrary to the assurances of, of uh, Nick Clegg, who's the former UK deputy prime minister, now gets millions a year to go talk to his former international colleagues on behalf of Facebook and insist that a strong Facebook will defend Western cyberspace from the Chinese Communist Party, that the Chinese Communist Party hates Chinese big tech companies and is in fact like rounding up their leadership and sticking them in gulags because they understand that these are not uh, tendrils of soft power representing the Chinese state, but instead they are hard power representing the shareholders of these companies, just like every big tech company is. So you mentioned uh, Lena Khan. You're right. Take Lena Khan, the brilliant head of the U.S. Federal Trade Commission, who has done more in the three years on antitrust than the combined efforts of all of her predecessors over the past 40 years. The Wall Street Journal's editorial page has run more than 80 pieces trashing Khan, insisting that she's an ineffectual ideologue who can't get anything done. Sure, that's why you ran 80 editorials about her, because she can't get anything done, you write. So Khan has worked hard to end junk fees from bank as, banks, as well as things like deceptive practices, including companies changing terms of services without notifying customers. She is also advocating for greater competition in healthcare as a way to improve service and cut costs for patients. However, I did not know that until doing re your research for this interview, I, I had never heard ab about uh, all of the work that she has been doing. How aware is the public? How much is the U.S. press covering whatever successes Khan is having at the FTC? And do you think that the Biden administration, the Biden campaign could make hay by pointing out what the FTC has been doing? Or would that just lead to more money against Biden? I think there's a lot of room for the Biden administration to stop hiding its uh, its uh, light under a bushel here. 
Um, and, you know, I think the FTC has itself has done a pretty good job, but we haven't seen as much from the bully pulpit as we could have. Um, you know, they've been like politically extraordinarily shrewd. They've done a lot of stuff that's somewhat technical, which makes it a little hard to tell the story. Like, for example, you know, every five to 10 years, the agencies create new merger guidelines. And it's like, I can hear your eyes glazing over from here. But like, these are the formal criteria that the agencies use to assess whether or not they will challenge a merger. And they carry enormous weight with the courts. And you can't just like write your own merger guidelines. You have to... Um, uh, do these like notice and comment periods where you produce this like strong evidentiary basis for making your merger guidelines stick and so on. It's very boring technical work and it's vastly consequential, right? Like if you want all the hospitals within a hundred miles of you to be owned by one company, or if you want all of the dialysis clinics within a hundred miles of you to be owned by one company that jacks up the prices, that lowers the quality of care. And that in the case of dialysis clinics where this has happened, if you complain to the agencies, refuses to provide dialysis and condemns you to die, then yeah, just don't care about merger guidelines because it's the merger guidelines that determine whether that stuff happens, right? This is like where the rubber meets the road. And so they they are like like the uh, the uh, photocopy repair person in the joke who uh, shows up and kicks the photocopy repair person or photocopier and then hands the the company a bill for seventy five dollars and the accounts payable department says seventy five dollars to kick our photocopier and the photocopy repairer says no I, I kick it for five bucks I charge seventy bucks to know where to kick it. These people showed up in office knowing exactly where to kick our national photocopiers, and they're kicking the shit out of it. Uh, and it's great. Like, they are doing so much important technical work that is going to have these long, durable effects. You can think of it as like a, an open, above board, and and uh, good version of the work that the Federals, Federalist Society did for all those years, where they just quietly incubated, you know, certain kinds of legal thinking and brought certain kinds of test cases before friendly judges and held continuing education seminars for judges where they paid for lavish junkets, where they got to learn these crackpot theories they embraced. And, you know, over a long time, they, they created this base that has become very hard for us to dislodge and that has uh, uh, made for a strong foundation for a program that is just destroying the lives of millions of people. This is the uh, inverse of that. And rather than doing it in secret, they're doing it out in the open. And yeah, hell yeah, they could talk more about it. So how important was lying to the public and using their personal information without their knowledge? How integral was that to Facebook's business model, its strategy, and its success. Do you think that we are going to see this same bait and switch process being, is, is that what is at the heart of enshittification, a bait and switch? No, enshittification, you know, and I've been, I, it started as just a funny word I used to complain about something and then turned into a grand theory. I don't want to pretend that I was smarter than I actually am. But enshittification uh, has evolved into a pretty comprehensive theory to explain um, first of all, what the symptomology is of all the things that are going wrong, like like what the pattern is, and that pattern is one that I think your listeners will recognize. Um, you have companies that are first good to their users. You know, they they lose money offering users a service that's really good. 
Uh, you know, for example, like Facebook just connects you to the people that you asked to hear from and not the advertisers or publishers that would pay to reach you. And then over time, once you're locked in, some of that value is taken away and it's reallocated to the um, uh, business customers that the platform hopes to make money on. And, and so in the case of Facebook, that would be like advertisers and publishers. And and they go to these people and they say, hey, you know, I know we told our, our users that we weren't going to spy on them. We were just going to show them the things they asked to see. But tell you what, we're like spying on them with every hour that God sends. And we're cramming uh, whatever you want to pay us to show them non-consensually into their eyeballs. So all you got to do as an advertiser is like, tell us who you want to target and give us remarkably small sums of money. And, and we will target those people to really, you know, exquisitely fine detailed uh, extent. Um, and not only that, but like just out of our own good nature, we're going to spend a fortune on um, anti-fraud so that when you give us a dollar for an ad, it's shown to the person you expected to see it. And that person definitely sees it. And it's not, you know, just, just like being shown below the fold on a page that never gets scrolled down and then you're double billed for it or whatever. And for the publishers, you know, they say like, we're, we're just gonna, you know, you give us your excerpts and your links and we'll show them to users who never asked to see them. And that's just going to be a free traffic funnel that's going to drive traffic to your website. You can monetize however you see fit. And then, you know, once those two groups are, are totally locked in, the companies start to, uh, again, extract value from them and give it to themselves. So, you know, you pay more for ads, the targeting is worse. You know, I think from like the perspective of people who are like leftists or consumer advocates, we assume that the advertisers must be really happy with uh, what's going on here. They're actually totally miserable. They're spending more than ever and they're getting worse results than ever. You know, Procter & Gamble zeroed out their $100 million per year advertising spend and lost no business because the the ads that they were paying to show weren't actually being shown to anyone. Or if they were, they weren't being shown to the people that they'd paid to, to have see them. Um, meanwhile, publishers found that they had to include larger and larger excerpts, you know, be ever more generous in that excerpting until they were finally uh, like commodity backend suppliers to the platform because their stuff would only be shown. If they uh, if they put the whole article in there and eventually didn't even include a link back to their website because Facebook said, oh, well, what if it's a malicious link? We don't know. So, you know, you put a link in there. We're not going to show it to anyone. Uh, and so now you're in this like delicate equilibrium where all the value that can be extracted has been. And they're trying to leave just enough in there to make sure that people remain stuck to the platform. And, and that's just so brittle, right? Because the difference between, oh, I hate this place, but I just can't stop myself from using it. And holy crap, why did I wait this long? I'm out of here. It's razor thin. You know, you get one privacy scandal, one, you know, whistleblower, one live stream mass shooting, and people bolt for the exits. And then the platforms panic. And, and you know, the tech term for panic is pivot. And in the case of Facebook, the panic was like, yeah, we told you that your future would be arguing with your racist uncle and a primitive text interface for the rest of time. But actually, the future is that we're going to convert you into a legless, sexless, low polygon, heavily surveilled cartoon character in a virtual world that we stole from a 25-year-old cyberpunk novel. And, you know, that is the final stage when everything turns into a pile of shit. Uh, and and that's where we are now within shitification and not just with Facebook, but everywhere else. So that's the symptomology. But the theory and which maybe we can discuss in more detail because I've been monologuing for a while here. The theory also digs into like, how do tech platforms do this? What is it about digital platforms that allows this to happen? And also, um, uh, 
why is this happening all at once, right? The kind of epidemiology of it. And then finally, like, what can we do about it, right? Like, like how do we cure it now that we know how it works, now that we know how it displays itself, and now that we know why it's spreading, what do we do to, to make sure that it stops? And, and I have an answer for all of those. You mentioned that uh, these stock buybacks from Facebook continued earlier this month when the company announced a quarterly dividend of 50 cents per share and that it would increase share buybacks by $50 billion and the stock jumped. So did Meta save Facebook for their shareholders? No, that was AI. Uh, the the of the the uh, I think it's like fifty richest billionaires in the world. Like the majority of gains that they made last year came from AI stocks, and the single largest beneficiary was Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, they just they found it. They thought at first that they would hitch their wagon to a stupid pump and dump called Metaverse, and instead they hitched their wagon to a stupid pump and dump called AI. So, uh, what is the likelihood then that the next platform, if there is? one post Facebook, will also suffer from this exact same enchidification. Well, this is where I think Marx, uh, Marxists and leftists sometimes get tripped up on like what actually happened with uh, enchidification, like why tech used to be good and why it's bad. And there's a kind of first approximation answer is like just, you know, because capitalism. And, and the problem with that theory is that it lacks the explanatory power to uh, describe why it was we went through a long kind of gilded age, or, or not probably the wrong word to use here, golden age maybe, in which um, the tech platforms were actually quite useful and including uh, useful to like uh, uh, dissident movements. They became, you know, the locus of things like Occupy and Black Lives Matter and Me Too and, and were, you know, extremely beneficial to marginalized people who normally capitalism tramples. Um, so what happened to turn uh, those platforms sour? Like, how did they go wrong? And the way to understand this, I think, is in terms of constraint. And now we're getting into the um, why did uh, why is tech going bad all at once now? The the epidemiology portion of this theory. So the thing that that keeps tech platforms from going bad, and that keeps any firm from going bad is discipline on the company leadership. Because all the things being equal, shareholders of companies would rather that uh, as little as possible be spent on products and as little as possible be spent on wages and as much as possible be returned to shareholders. And so something has to intervene to stop the company from making bad products, paying substandard wages, uh, and, and making money. And you know the first thing is competition, right? If, if a company has competitors and it lowers the quality of its goods, then on balance, the competitors will move in and, and, and take those goods up. If a company mistreats its workers, then on balance, a competitor will come in and, and offer those workers a better deal. And so it, on balance, when there's competition, companies behave somewhat better. It's not the, the be all and end all. It doesn't solve all of our problems, but it is a significant check on bad corporate behavior. So as I mentioned, 40 years ago, we shot competition in the guts, right? The, there's been a, a 40 year long drawdown of competition enforcement. And that is totally coterminal with the growth of consumer technology, right? The Apple II Plus hit the shelves the same year Ronald Reagan hit the campaign trail. Uh, at, at every turn, as tech has grown, antitrust has shrunk. 
And so unlike other industries where there's some residual understanding that certain kinds of cheating, like uh, merging with your major rivals or buying small rivals and extinguishing them before they could grow to become rivals, or selling goods below cost as a way of keeping rivals from entering the market, that all of these things were, were going to get you in trouble. And so they didn't do them for a while. It took a while for the message to percolate, but not with tech. With tech, this was like the strategy out of the gate. This is how they operated, and they only got bolder as time went by. And so that's that's the the competition constraint that's gone away. You know, as as Lily Tomlin used to say on Saturday Night Live when she would play uh, this AT and T operator doing commercials for the Bell system. We don't care. We don't have to care. We're the phone company. So you have Google, ninety percent search market. They don't care. They don't have to care. They're the search engine. Um, and so as the, the competition goes away, it becomes a lot easier for these companies to all agree on what they're going to tell Congress or Parliament or the European Commission or, you know, indeed, UN specialized agencies like the World Intellectual Property Organization. So if, if your listeners might remember, you know, during the Napster Wars, uh, there were like seven entertainment companies fighting a hundred tech companies, and those hundred tech companies were much larger in aggregate than the entertainment companies. But because they were disunified, because a hundred companies is a rabble and seven companies is a cartel, they had no message discipline, and they kept tripping each other up. Meanwhile, when big content showed up in in Brussels, Westminster, DC, uh, or any of the other forums where it mattered, like courts. They spoke with one voice. They had perfect message discipline, and they kicked tech's ass. Well, today, tech is what Tom Eastman calls five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. And this means that wherever regulation might bind a company and keep them from abusing us in, in order to protect us, so you know that would be things like privacy law, labor law, uh, consumer rights, um, they just get to ignore those laws. They say, well, we're not violating those laws because we did it with an app. And because the regulators are captured, because the firms are concentrated, they get away with that you know, foolish uh, uh, description of their conduct. That is uh, also extends into another kind of regulatory capture. So regulatory, regulatory capture, um, or, or in the era of, of less regulation in tech, you had a unique and distinctive feature of tech that would come in and benefit all of us. And that is the fact that digital technology is extremely flexible in a way that other kinds of technology aren't. The only computer we know how to make is the Turing complete universal von Neumann machine that can run every program we know how to write. And as a result, whenever someone would enshittify their product, a new market entrant could show up and disenshittify it. If you locked down your ink and started charging $10,000 a gallon for it, someone could clone your ink chips and start making uh, third-party ink cartridges that charge 10 cents a gallon for the ink, which is about the cost of materials. And um, as time has gone by, the same regulatory capture that allows these companies to ignore regulation has also allowed them to enforce regulations selectively against their rivals. And specifically, we've seen this metastasis of intellectual property law that allows companies to sue or even criminally prosecute rival firms, individuals, tinkerers, nonprofits, and anyone else who reverse engineers their products and makes them better. So while more than half of all web users have installed an ad blocker, zero app users have installed an ad blocker because to reverse engineer the app violates section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is a felony carrying a five-year prison sentence and a $500,000 fine. Uh, Jay Freeman calls this felony contempt of business model. 
And then the final constraint on tech was always workers, because tech workers enjoyed this unique and distinctive relationship with their employers, where on the one hand, they had very low union density, but on the other hand, they had a lot of bargaining power just because they were in such short supply and because tech workers made such a difference to the massive margins and growth that these large firms could post if they could get the best talent. And what that meant was that the tech firms had to motivate these workers by convincing them that they were on a mission, by instilling what the librarian Fabazi Etar calls vocational awe, or you know, Elon Musk calls it being extremely hardcore, where they were on a mission to do something that was historically important. And even if that meant missing their kids' little league game and their mom's funeral, it would be worth it in the long run because they were they were doing something that history would record. And the problem for that from a boss's perspective is while that can convince people who are making a lot of money and have a lot of bargaining power to work 20-hour days, sleep under their desk, and miss their, their kids' Little League game, and, and even consent to have their eggs frozen because they work through their entire fertile life, it also means that they will feel a genuine sense of mission. And when you order them to do something bad to the company, uh, to the products, they say, no, that's a moral injury. I care about these products. And if you say, well, do it or we'll fire you, they say, you can't fire me. I quit. I got a better job waiting for me across the road. So as tech grows more concentrated and gains what's called a monopsony, which is the buying power over labor, which is the, the kind of inverse of the monopoly, which is the selling power over customers, as they become monopsonists, they get to lay off 260,000 tech workers. They get to fire 12,000 Google engineers within eight months of doing a stock buyback that would have paid their wages for 27 years. And now, when you try to discipline these companies by saying, I'll quit if you, if you break the product I work so hard on, they say, fine, turn in your badge and don't let the door hit you in the ass on the way out. And so now we have this circumstance where the same companies, often with the same leaders that once gave us good products, now give us bad products, even though over 20 years, they mostly gave us good products. And when they failed to give us good products, they weren't able to stop other people, people who might be just as venal and wicked as they are from making good products that we were easily able to switch to without incurring those high switching costs. And as that constraint has now been removed, you see these companies all turning to the bad. And so the question isn't, can someone start a new company that's good? Of course they can. And the question isn't, is that inevitably going to go bad? Because it's not inevitable that it will go bad. And it's not inevitable that if it goes bad, that we won't be able to leave. The question is, will we be able to constrain both these very large firms and the small firms that challenge them? Will we be able to restore those kinds of constraints that made them, despite their preclusion, Treat us better. We are speaking with award-winning science fiction author, activist, and journalist Corey Doctorow, who posted the Financial Times article on shitification is coming for absolutely everything. Corey has a new book out. It's called The Bezel, a high-stakes thriller where the lives of the hundreds of thousands of inmates in California's prisons are traded like stock shares. Corey will be making an appearance for that book uh, here in the Chicago area, including an author presentation, audience Q&A, book signing, and photo line. Uh, he, in Naperville on Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. in Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville at 123 West Jefferson Avenue. We will be posting this across social media. So if you don't have time to write it down right now, you'll be able to find it later. But again, Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. at Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville at 123 
West Jefferson Avenue. Again, that's a five-year sentence and a half a million dollar fine for a first offense for trying to sell your own creation, as you point out when you're you know, using the example of an Audible book, uh, elsewhere other than Amazon after you first sell it there. You point out how there's that's a stiffer penalty than you would face if you simply pirated the audiobook. From an inter- yeah. from a torrent site, but it's also harsher than the punishment you'd get for shoplifting the audiobook on CD from a truck stop. It's harsher than the sentence you'd get for hijacking the truck that delivered the CD. Is there any discussion of repealing that law or considering th- their power? Do you think that's even possible that in any campaign to do so will be crushed by their political influence and financial power? Yeah, unfortunately, there's just been so much uh, gridlock on um, copyright reform, and it's become such a political football that uh, attempts to reform the Digital Millennium Copyright Act have thus far been largely unsuccessful. Um, What we have seen is in certain domains, you've seen laws that are just attempting to prohibit companies from using the digital locks that allow them to invoke this law. So like specifically in, in right to repair, you see laws like the the law pending in Oregon that says that if you use these digital locks to stop a device that's been repaired by an independent technician from recognizing the um, the uh, uh, new part that's been installed, that you have to turn that off on demand by an independent technologist, uh, an independent repair shop, or you're not allowed to use it at all. Uh, so you know this is like tinkering in the margins, but it's still quite productive. Um, we brought a case uh, in, I believe, the the federal circuit on behalf of Matthew Green and and Andrew Huang. Uh, Matthew is from uh, Johns Hopkins, and and Andrew Huang, who goes by Bunny Huang, uh, is at MIT. And we brought a case trying to argue that they had a constitutional right to publish uh, information about how these systems were defective. That that they're code was a form of speech and that their critical their technical critiques were a form of speech and unfortunately the the court bounced that for standing and so we're we're kind of uh looking around for other ways to try and break that congressional deadlock and and maybe get the courts to act instead of the um instead of the the congress you write that intellectual property isn't just short for intellectual pro- IP isn't just short for intellectual property. It's a euphemism for a law that lets me reach beyond the walls of my company and control the conduct of my critics, competitors, and customer. An app is just a euphemism for a web page wrapped in enough IP to make it a felony to mod it to protect the labor, consumer, and privacy rights of its user. So is the problem at the heart of enshittification intellectual property, because intellectual property was sold to the public as protecting someone's creation, making it so the only person who can profit from it is the creator themselves, and nobody can use their work to profit from it themselves. Is the solution to enshittification ending intellectual property as we know it right now, and will that make creators' works vulnerable to exploitation by others who had nothing to do with that creation? Yeah. So I don't think that that's the problem per se. I think the the problem is that when uh, a market dwindles to a handful of very large firms, that a lot of the things that we think of as as working stop working in the same way that like when a gravity well gets deep enough, the physics breaks down. So you know the the um, idea behind intellectual property rights is that as a creator, you get to bargain with this like tradable right. Uh, and so you you go to 
uh, a company and you say like, I have written this book and uh, I'm going to sell it to you. And they say, well, we will buy the right to publish it from you for X dollars. And you say, I want more. And you go back and forth uh, as kind of two businesses. That's always had limited value, you know, in the, in the constitution, um, the uh, original copyright law actually provides for only 14 years worth of copyright on initial registration and then requires the creator to re-register the copyright, uh, not the publisher. The publisher can't re-register the copyright. And the idea here was that the um, the creator might bargain with a weak hand when they first go to the publisher because no one knows if their book is worth anything yet. But that after uh, the book has been proven out, they can go back to the publisher with a stronger hand and basically say, this is like mutually assured destruction. Um, if you uh, don't give me a better deal to renew this copyright, then I'll just let it fall into the public domain and anyone can republish it. Um, and I don't give a damn because you paid me so little for the book in the first place that I'm not seeing any money from it. So I might as well let it fall in the public domain. Um, and, and the problem is that as the sector becomes more concentrated, that becomes a harder and harder trick to pull off to, to bargain successfully with your copyrights or with your other uh, rights, patents, and so on, trademarks, uh, because um, they hold all the cards. So, you know, we live in a market where we have five giant publishers, four giant studios, three giant labels, two giant uh, ad tech companies, and one company that controls all the ebooks and audiobooks. And when you go to them with, with rights that Congress has given you and you say, like, I'm going to sell you these rights, they go, okay, well, the price is whatever we're willing to pay. No one else is willing to pay anything for it. We've got like a standard set of terms and a standard fee scale that uh, if you don't like it, you can just like go screw yourself. Um, and if you go back to Congress and say, well, uh, my rights are not bringing in the revenue I was hoping for and give me more rights, those same companies just take those rights too without giving you any more money, you know, uh, under conditions of, of monopsony where, the, where there's just a few buyers for creative labor, giving creators more copyright is like giving bullied school kids extra lunch money, right? There isn't an amount of lunch money that if you just hit the right sum, they'll finally like be able to eat lunch. Instead, what happens is the bullies get more and more and more and more money until they have so much money that they can afford to run international campaigns saying like, won't someone think of the poor creators, give them more lunch money, and then they take that too. Uh, and so, you know, what we need to understand is that there are uh, copyright regimes that can protect creators' interests without leading to monopoly. Um, you know, the, the 1976 Copyright Act contains this thing called copyright termination, where after 35 years, no matter what contract you signed, you can go back to uh, the publisher or the label of the studio and file some paperwork with the copyright office and say, give me back that copyright. Even though I promised I would never do this, you can't hold me to that promise. I cannot contract out of this right. And we're seeing all kinds of people use this. You know, um, uh, you've seen George Clinton take back his rights this way, and Stephen King, and the authors of the Babysitters Club and Sweet Valley High books. Uh, there, the Disney just settled a huge lawsuit from the heirs of of um, uh, Steve Ditko and uh, Stan Lee and the other key creators of Marvel, who went back and said, "We assigned the rights to these characters to Marvel 35 years ago. Then you bought Marvel. Well, we're going to take the characters back." And sell them again, or you know, work them independently. And Disney had to buy them again from these creators and their estates. So we could strengthen that right. We could we could uh, make what was originally proposed in the 1976 Act, the law, where it was originally proposed that after 20 years you'd get the rights back. 
and that the rights would go back automatically unless you took a step not to take the rights back and so that no one would have to screw around with paperwork to get their rights back. That would be a thing that would absolutely enhance the livelihoods of creators without creating these monopolies that we see today. Um, but the reason we're unlikely to get that and the reason we're more likely to get things that just strengthen corporate corporate power uh, is that we have monopolies who end up driving the legislative and regulatory agenda. And so this is why doing something about monopoly is so important. And the cool thing about that is that monopoly is so harmful to so many people in so many domains, whether you know, you're know you someone getting dialysis or someone trying to make a living as a screenwriter or someone who just likes beer or brews beer and is angry that two companies control all the beer, or you're someone who wears eyeglasses and is angry that one company, Luxottica Essilor, owns every brand of eyeglass you've ever heard of, from Dolce & Gabbana to Coach to Oakley, and owns every store you've ever bought eyeglasses in, from Sunglass Hut to... Um, uh, to uh, lens crafters and makes more than half of the world's eyeglass lenses and has raised the price of glasses a thousand percent in 10 years. No matter why you're angry at Monopoly, you can be part of this coalition to fight Monopoly. And that's how we ultimately gain back the power to make good policy. Just a couple more questions for you, Corey. You quote Martin Luther King Jr. at the end of your Financial Times article saying, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. You add, and it may be true that the law can't force corporations to conceive of you as a human being entitled to dignity and fair treatment and not just an ambulatory wallet, a supply of gut bacteria for the immortal colony organism that is a limited liability corporation, but it can make them fear you enough to treat you fairly and afford you dignity, even if they don't think you deserve it. If we can scare them into giving us dignity, what does that say about how powerful they truly are? Do we exaggerate not how much power they have, but how sustainable that power is about how much they truly do have a hold on that power? Well, you know, I, I, I don't want to downplay the the, the power of, of large corporations. It's very clear that, you know, this, this policy that was crafted to produce excessive corporate power was very successful. And we are living in the future that the Chicago school created for us. But anything that can't go on forever eventually stops. Um, you know, as powerful as corporations are today, I don't think that they're as powerful as they were during the, the trust buster era where you saw you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie and Mellon and these other robber barons successfully uh, 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 countered by trust busters who had the public at their back, who, who were working with an enormous amount of political uh, goodwill and, and support. And I think that like, if they could do it, we could do it, right? This, the, the way that they tamed corporate power is not like some lost art, right? It's not like uh, it's not like you know uh, embalming pharaohs, right? Like the people who did that. Well, maybe they're not alive today, but like people who spoke to them are alive today. They left a lot of records. Like we can find out what they did, and we can do it again using the specific characteristics of today's market, today's technologies to to make it work for us. That's our that's our opportunity here. And I, I, I think that 
you know, as much as I think that capitalism broadly is is irredeemable as as we understand it today, I also think that there are versions of capitalism that leave the people that we care about uh, less in harm's way, and that allow them to uh, devote more of their energy to building a better world without having to spend so much energy just on survival. And that, you know, if you're a comrade, that should be your program. Your program should be figuring out how to deliver uh, not just long-lasting sustainable change, which is super important, but also the short-term change that makes it easier to create that long-term change. We have been speaking with science fiction author, activist, and journalist Cory Doctorow, who posted the Financial Times article, and shitification is coming for absolutely everything. He's got a new book out. It's called The Bezel, a high-stakes thr thriller where the lives of the hundreds of thousands of inmates in California's prisons are traded like stock shares. Corey will be making an appearance, including an author presentation, audience Q&A, book signing and photo line here in the Chicago area on Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. at Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville at 123 West Jefferson Avenue. You can find out more about Corey as well as read his blog at his website, craphound.com. And you can follow Corey on X at Dr. O. One last question for you, Corey. And we do this with all of our guests. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. It's either going to be the question I hate to ask, you hate to answer, or the category it usually falls in. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write the bad news is in shitification is coming to every industry. If it's got a network computer in it, the people who made it can run the Darth Vader NBA playbook on it changing the rules from moment to moment, violating your rights, and then saying, it's okay, we did it with an app. From Mercedes effectively renting you your accelerator pedal by the month to Internet of Things dishwashers that lock you into proprietary dish soap and shitification is metastasizing into every corner of our lives. Software doesn't eat the world. It just enshittifies it. So there are things like, for example, coffee makers and toaster ovens and all sorts of home appliances that only brew or cook food processed by the companies who made those appliances, all in the name of convenience and their products being so good you will not want to choose another. And in fact, you can't. Does smart technology lead to enshittification? And more importantly, do we recognize the role we play in our own consumer choices in enshittifying our own lives? I, I just think that's the wrong question. I, I think that, you know, the problem isn't that we buy the wrong things, right? That we cast ballots for the wrong party in the vote with your wallet election. Um, you know, the vote with your wallet election is a rigged election where the monopoly party always wins because the people with the thickest wallets get the most votes. And I, I think that what we're actually... Um, uh, what actually gives rise to enshittification is the companies that we buy things from not fearing that they will be punished if they do the things that they wanted to do all along. And the way that we make those companies treat us better is by making them afraid of us again, not by rewarding them for good behavior, but by effectively punishing them for bad behavior. That's where we get uh, the kind of durable change that will cause companies run by people who are just the scum of the earth. And if they came to your house, you count the spoons when they left, um, how you get them to cough up something that is worth your using and worthy of your respect. 
See, I knew I was going to hate that. I hate asking that question from hell. Corey, I really appreciate you being on the show. I, this, I'm really looking forward to reading The Bezel, and it would be our honor to have you back on the show sometime this summer to discuss it, because we've, I've never had the challenge of actually doing an interview about a novel, and I can't think of a better novel to start doing that with. So it'd really be great to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for being on today. We truly appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it'd be my pleasure to come back on. I hope we can make that work. Hey, thanks, Corey. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. For a conversation with Corey Doctorow, made you finally understand why everything's turning to crap, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Not only will that be the first interview that I have ever done on a novel. Actually, the second. I think there was one with Walter Mosley, but that might have been a nonfiction book. I can't remember now. Uh, but I think this is going to be the first novel I've ever interviewed anybody about. This uh, new book by Cory Doctorow, again, The Bezel. But not only would that be my, our first interview with a fiction author on a piece of fiction, it would also be, get this, our first in-studio interview ever as we moved into this studio in July of 2019 and the pandemic happened shortly afterwards we have not had anybody in here for a live studio interview. Jeff Dorchin has come in and done the moment of truth live in the studio but we have never had somebody here in studio and on top of that the interview may be taking place on or we've tentatively scheduled it for July 20th. Now why is that a big deal? Well, it's a Saturday. We don't do stuff on Saturdays. But it's not only a Saturday. It's the Saturday when we will be having our annual listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show. So on the morning of the anniversary party, Corey might be here in studio with us. He might be hanging out with us downstairs during the party. And we'll definitely be giving away his autographed copy of The Bezel as one of the gifts in the raffle. So, show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our bonus Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, or you can show your support for completely listeners supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. On Patreon this past week, we had a very special guest on the podcast. That guest was some bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show live stream podcast host named Chuck Mertz. Mertz, Mertz, I guess. Complete doofus. So, why would we interview him? Well, we didn't. Instead, that weirdo was interviewed by Scott Price, programming director at Winnipeg's independent community radio station, CKUW-FM, where This Is Hell airs every Sunday evening. CKUW is in the midst of their fundraiser, and for the second year in a row, Scott interviewed me. The topic was the importance of community radio, but the only way you can hear that conversation is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon, patreon.com slash thisishell. Also on Patreon this past week, we played an archived interview that cannot be found anywhere else online. Thank God. An interview that has come up during my answers to Patreon patrons, questions from hell for me, which is another perk for subscribing on Patreon. You get to ask a question from hell of me. So recently, patrons have asked me what was the worst interview you have ever done and who was your worst guest? And the answer to both those questions is, the worst interview I've ever done was with our worst guest ever. And that guest was, I don't remember. I don't want to remember. All I remember is he was with the Boring Institute, 
not Elon Musk's boring company that's just a scam. The Boring Institute, which may be a scam too, and unless he was doing some sort of self-referential postmodernist performance art piece, he was just boring. Cam listened to the Patreon podcast, and here's what he posted in our Discord community about the interview with the guy from the Boring Institute. And, Will, did you listen to the interview? Sure did. So this is what Cam said, and you tell me if this is... A good criticism. Good lord, this Boring Institute interview on the Patreon feed is excruciating. And I can't stop listening to it. Yeah, that's how I felt too. How long was it? Uh, It ended up being about 25 minutes. No kidding, I went on that long? I think so, yeah. Oh, dude, I'm sorry that you went through that. I'm sorry you went through that. God, God, I thought that ended after a was a long time ago, but... Wow. I mean, yeah. What, 1998, I think? Yeah, I mean, trauma can manifest all sorts of times in the future. So you listened to the whole thing, though. I did, I was curious. (laughs) (laughs) But the only way you can hear me being interviewed by a Canadian radio station and the worst interview I've ever done with our worst guest is by subscribing at patreon.com slash this is hell. Will, what is this week's question from hell and how are our listeners responding at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's question from hell comes from Hugh on our Discord community who asked, what are you bringing to this, the this is hell bake sale? And on Patreon, we have a half dozen responses. Uh, starting things off is Essential, who responds, a hot box. <laughs> All right. Okay. Uh, Craig J. I assume it's Bento, right? Is yeah, it's a Bento box. <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. Nice. <laughs> Nice light lunch. Um, uh, Craig J. replies, a wheelbarrow full of Bitcoin. <laughs> Gross. Well, you want to just buy stuff at the bake sale. Yeah. Clearly that's right. what's going Hopefully on. Hopefully they take crypto. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Greg K. answers, my appetite for destruction All right. baked goods. <laughs> Okay. Um, so money changes things. Yeah. He's going to be kicking over the bake sale team. That's right. <laughs> um, Edson C. says jalapeno muffins. Oh, sounds, sounds good. good. That does sound good. Yeah. Slug uh, says weed brownies, of course. Of course. Of course. That should have been the answer to like 100% of them. I'm surprised it wasn't. I know. That's what I was anticipating. And then finally, Jamie K. answers with rye bread, but rye is spelled with a W. Oh, Jamie. <laughs> You've won questions from hell in the past. But I have it's a really me. bad thing to tell you. Sad, sad, sad that you won't be winning this week. <laughs> Not for that. I can't encourage that kind of pun work on our show. Oh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins, who will not be Jamie K. Wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can post it in our Facebook group page, Welcome to Hell Hole. You can direct message it to us via X at This Is Hell Radio. You can post it in our Discord community. You can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. Or if you are a subscriber, you get... As always, you get first crack at answering the question from hell every week at patreon.com slash thisishell. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we will be announcing the winner following our interview with Amy Cooter on extremist right-wing U.S. militias. 
It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory. This week in Rotten History. On February 20th, 1939, 85 years ago this week, some, this is one of the most rotten history moments ever, but just bear, bear with me. That's a stiff competition. I know. I mean, it's not as brutal and deadly as others, but this is pretty hellish. On February 20th, 1939, 85 years ago this week, some 22,000 members of the German America Bund held a major convention at New York's Madison Square Garden, which tells you something about the management over at New York's Madison Square <laughs> yeah. Garden in 1939. And if you've not seen the uh, footage, watch it. It pops up on a regular basis on, like, the History Channel. Sure does. And the Military History Channel and all of the fake history channels that don't really show you history, except for every so often. They have this great B-roll I mean, of Nazis man, at Madison Square Garden. They show you how to find a, score a great find at a pawn shop or <laughs> an antique shop. Exactly. That's about it. Right. So the German-American Bund was a proudly right-wing and openly fascist organization dedicated to promoting a sympathetic view of Adolf Hitler's Nazi regime in the United States. Think of them as today's mainstream Republicans. This convention was not the first major public assembly of American Nazi sympathizers, nor was it the biggest. In fact, this summer's is happening in the middle of July in Milwaukee. For example, just the previous October in 1938, a crowd of Nazis, almost twice as big, about 40,000, had assembled at Cap Camp Siegfried, a Long Island complex, also owned by the Bund, to march around in German Nazi and Italian fascist regalia and listen to speakers praise Hitler and promote a motley hodgepodge of far-right propaganda. So, Long Island back then was a lot like Idaho is today, and far too much of Long Island still remains that way. Other similar camps had also been in operation for several years in locations ranging from New Jersey to Wisconsin. Not much of a range there, but both make a lot of sense. But now that Nazi Germany was seen as a growing threat in Europe and points beyond, the event at Madison Square Garden was drawing increased attention. Against the backdrop of a three-story high, full-length full-length depiction of George Washington surrounded by stars, stripes, and swastikas in don't give today's Nazis here in the States any ideas. Although Washington was very much a white supremacist who owned slaves, a series of speakers confident in their First Amendment right to free speech took the podium to spout anti-Semitic sentiments and to conflate the ideals of Nazi Germany with those of the so-called founding fathers of the United States is frighteningly easier, easier than you may think. In his keynote speech, Fritz Kuhn, leader of the Bund, denounced President Franklin Roosevelt, along with Hollywood and the news media, in calling for the U.S. government to be, quote, returned to the American people who founded it, unquote, as the crowd of 20,000 white people responded with arms held high in the fascist salute. At one point during the speech, a 26-year-old Jewish-American plumber named Isidore Greenbaum jumped onto the stage, this is also really great footage, ran at Kuhn and was quickly grabbed and beaten by Kuhn's own guards until New York City police moved in to take him away. A New York Times correspondent, famous correspondent at the time named Dorothy Thompson, who had previously reported from Berlin, also heckled Kuhn and was removed from the venue. Outside, meanwhile, 100,000 counter-protesters, not good for the 20,000 people inside, had surrounded Madison Square Garden, and some were tangling with the more than 2,000 police and firefighters sent there by New York Mayor 
Fiorello, LaGuardia, and you gotta wonder how much he was had a friendly relationship with the people who booked acts at Madison Square Garden. The event amounted to a public high-water mark for the German-America Bund, which would soon find itself in big trouble after Nazi Germany invade Poland a few months later, triggering World War II. Within a few years, Kuhn would be convicted of embezzlement, sent to prison, stripped of his United States citizenship, and finally deported. And it's really weird how many of these far-right groups they always get busted for embezzlement, and it always seems like they're just some kind of pyramid scheme, like the Freeman uh, movement that was happening right at the time that this show began, back in like 1996, 1997. Other leaders of the Bund were also sent to jail, and after the United States entered the war in December 1941, the German-American Bund was finally outlawed. Now that's rotten history, and this is Hell Will, who are our upcoming guests on this week's show. First up is University of Toronto sociologist Emini Fidan Elchiolu, who recently published the study Armed Citizens on the Border, How Guns Fuel Anti-Immigration Politics in America. And then uh, well, Amy... Let's just stop right there for a second. Yeah. Bravo on the reading of her name. Look Thank at you. you. Yeah, I yeah, Googled it oh. before the, or actually during the interview. I was, and, I was very afraid. Very afraid. Found a panel discussion that she was on, so. I think I'm going to de be destroying her name yes tomorrow. Or yesterday's tomorrow. El Chiolu. Okay. Yeah. All right, who else? Uh, and then uh, after her, uh, we have Amy Cooter, who's returning to This Is Hell to talk about her new book, Nostalgia, Nationalism, and the U.S. Militia Movement. Amy is Director of Research, Academic Development, and Innovation at the Center on Terrorism, Extremism, and Counterterrorism. Don't forget, Corey Doctorow will be making an appearance in the Chicago area for his new book, The Bezel. It's a high-stakes thriller where the lives of, the, of hundreds of thousands of inmates in California's prisons are traded like stock shares. He will be making an appearance, including an author presentation, audience Q&A, book signing, and photo line here in the Chicago area on Wednesday, April 17th at 7 p.m. at Anderson's Bookshop in Naperville at 123 West Jefferson Avenue. Find out more about Corey by going to craphound.com. Follow Corey on X at Dr. O, D O C T O R O W. Thanks to Will Ippen for producing. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, and live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. This is Hell. Office hours are happening this Wednesday, as they do nearly every Wednesday. And they always happen at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. So the last couple of Wednesdays, it's been kind of like in the mid-40s, which is warm enough to be outside and hanging out around the fire pit. This Wednesday, when it's 6 p.m. at the beginning of office hours, it's supposed to be 60 degrees. So look for me out back in the beer garden, but... The fire pit might not be lit. I'm not too sure if it will be. It'll be warm enough that you won't need it. Or maybe I'll be inside on a bar stool warming up after being outside too long without the fire pit burning. Probably with Mel in my lap, the semi-feral bar cat. That's This Is Hell Office Hours. That happened this and every Wednesday evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. We told you so. This is hell. 
My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>